It's Christmas time. Who's excited? You don't sound excited. Who's excited? I, I love Christmas time. I love this time of year. I love the weather. Um, it's just so festive. Rain and floods. So that's, I think some Christmas carols talk about that. Not really. Um, Indiana weather is just not very cooperative, is it? Um, but I, I do love this time. It's a hopeful time. It's a joyful time of year. A time where we get to gather with, with family, with friends, celebrate. Uh, everybody just seems like a lot more upbeat. I know that there's folks that struggle this time of year for sure. But in general, like people seem friendlier. People seem, you know, more hopeful. Um, we, we, we even use this word miracle a little bit more this time of year. People seem to think that maybe those are possible a little bit more this time of year. Like there's the old movie Miracle on 34th Street. Anybody watch that? Ever seen that? Some of you are like, I've never heard of it. Um, but it's a, it's a good movie. It's a good movie. Uh, some of us even may use that phrase, you know, a Christmas miracle a little bit more. For example, we just had Christmas with the in-laws, and we made it through without any, any drama. It's a Christmas miracle, right? We, I, we haven't had that Christmas yet. That's coming up this week. So I'm praying for that. I'm hopeful. Who knows? Maybe there will actually be a Christmas miracle. Um, but, but we seem a little bit more open to the, the possibility. I had permission to say that, by the way. Um, we seem a little bit more open to the possibility uh, of a miracle. Even those of us who are a little more cynical, a little bit more skeptical, we're, we're a little bit more open. We think maybe, just, just maybe, just maybe, like a miracle could happen. You know, kids, kids are wired, Right? Think about my kids. They're, they're wired. There's no need for sugar at Christmas time. Kids are excited. They're, they're hyped up. But we're going to give them sugar anyway because it's Christmas. That's what it's all about. It's about miracles and sugar. And so we're going to give them lots of sugar. Not that they need it. They're wired. They're excited. They believe in the possibility of miracles. They believe. Right? They're gathered around that tree thinking, maybe, just maybe I'm going to get that new doll. Right? Maybe I get that bike. You know, Who knows? Dad actually let us get a dog this year. Maybe, just maybe, there'll be an Xbox One. Right? If you're a Jones kid, sorry, that's not happening. You already had your miracle, we have a dog. Um, Okay? But it's it's good to have dreams. You know, keep dreaming. Um, But I know my kids are excited. Like, they're pumped. They're, they're, They're always excited. It doesn't matter what's under the tree. They're full of excitement, full of joy, full of wonder. It just... This is awesome. It's a wonderful time. And it's a miracle kind of getting to watch that excitement unfold every Christmas. But it's not just kids. Even grown-ups, even us, we're, we're kind of a little bit more amped up, a little bit more excited, a little bit more hopeful that there could be, maybe, just maybe a miracle this Christmas. Right? Why is that? Why are we like that? Well, I think it's because Christmas is a miracle. Christmas is a miracle. It's all about a miracle. It's about the miracle. The grand miracle is what C.S. Lewis, the author, called it. The grand miracle, that the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ was born. God is with us. God came as one of us. It's a miracle. It's the miracle. Every other miracle in the Bible, like, points to, precedes, and directs us to this miracle of Christ coming, being born as a baby, coming as a man, fully God, fully man. Every other miracle afterwards demonstrates, either demonstrates this miracle or or results from this miracle. And that's why C.S. Lewis called it the grand miracle, that the word became flesh. God came to us as one of us. That's what we see in our text today. 
John chapter 1, verse 14. So if you turn there with me in your Bibles, on your apps, it's on page uh, 758 on the gray Bible on your row. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take that with, us, with you. We won't hunt you down or ask for money. That's a gift. Just use it, read it, take it. But let's stand together. Let's read from God's word. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for the gift of your word coming in the flesh. Jesus, we thank you that you came as one of us to live the life we couldn't, to die the death we deserve, to rise again victorious, to give us freedom and redemption, and hope, and joy. God, I pray that we would be in awe of the miracle of your coming today. That we would respond in worship and telling others all about it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So why, why is this birth of Jesus so miraculous? Why, why is it so miraculous? Let me give you this answer in two parts, right? First part is because Jesus is fully God. Because Jesus is fully God. Jesus is the eternal word. That's the language that John uses here in his gospel. He's the, the eternal word. Look, look back with me at the first part of chapter 1 in the gospel of John, verses 1 through 5. Right, John says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now John's talking about Jesus when he refers to the word here in these opening lines, in this opening chapter of his gospel. He makes that clear in verse 17 when he says, Jesus Christ is who I'm talking about here. He's the one who grace and truth come through. Right? Jesus is the eternal word. He's the eternal word. Well, what, what does that mean? Let's, let's try to unpack that a little bit. John gives us here, I think, four truths that kind of help us understand what, what that means, that Jesus is the word in these opening verses. Four truths about Jesus. Right? Jesus is eternally existent. That's the first one. He's eternally existent. He existed before anything ever was. He existed. He didn't just become a man and born to Mary and then became who he was. He's always been. He's eternally existent. John says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. It's the same kind of language we see all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. In other words, God has always been. Before there was a beginning, God has always been. Before there was a beginning, Jesus, the eternal word, has always been. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's eternal. He's eternally existent. Second truth, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. That's what we see here. It says, verse 1, he continues on. He says, the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was God. The word is God. Jesus is God. He's eternally existent because he is, in fact, God. He's God. He's the eternal word, the eternal son of God. Second person of the Trinity Right, the Godhead, the Trinity. You understand this, right? One God who's made up of three distinct persons, Father, Son, the Word, Holy Spirit, uh, who are each fully and equally God, who uh, 
exist in eternal relation with one another. Right? Jesus is God. He's God. That's the whole point of John's gospel, by the way. He works through this whole gospel that you would know that Jesus is God and that you would respond by believing in him and trusting that he is God in the flesh, that he came to rescue you. He's God, eternal God. Thirdly, he says, as God, Jesus is creator. He says that all things were made through him and not one thing, nothing. In the Greek, it means absolutely zero, nothing, right, was made without him. Jesus is creator. He's creator. He's the eternal word that spoke everything into existence. Genesis says that God creates by speaking. He says, let there be light, and there's light. He speaks the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the land, the sea, everything. He speaks it into existence. That's the word. Jesus is that word. He's that word. Everything is made through him. Some of you want to call it a big bang, and I'm okay with that. Because I'm pretty sure when God was speaking, just with the sheer power of his word, everything into existence, that that was a pretty big bang, right? It's a big bang. Jesus is the word. He's, he's present with God at creation. He's active in creation. He is creator. And lastly, fourthly, Jesus is also the sustainer. He's the sustainer. He's the source of life. Verses four and five say, um, <clears throat> excuse me. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. He's the source of life. Jesus is the source of life. And John uses that language of of light, right? Shining in the darkness, bringing forth, illuminating, bringing life. All life derives from him, for it is in him that we live and move and have our being, as Paul says. In Colossians, Paul says essentially the same thing here by saying that Jesus holds all things together. In him, everything is held together. He's the sustainer. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. So what does all this mean? What does all this mean? Well, it means that before Jesus was ever born in a a manger, right? Born in the, the barn, laid in a manger. Before any of that happened, he existed. He's eternally God. Before anything existed, he was there because he is God. And as God, he shares all of God's attributes, right? He's eternal. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's sovereign. He's holy. He's loving. He's gracious. He's perfectly righteous. And on and on and on, right? The first part of why the word became flesh is so miraculous is because that Jesus is fully God. He is fully God. Part two is, the reason why this is so miraculous is because Jesus is also fully man. Jesus is God in the flesh. God in the flesh. Look at verse 14 with me again. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is that grand miracle. This is the miracle. It's one of the most profound, most significant statements that's ever been written. That the word became flesh. The word became flesh. Jesus, who as we've already seen, is eternally one with God the Father, God the Spirit in divinity. He's one with them eternally. He becomes one with us in humanity. He comes as one of us. This word flesh, it's really a profound and interesting word here. In the Greek, it stands for the whole person. The whole person. It refers here to human existence and all of its frailty, all of its vulnerability. 
And Jesus has identified himself with us in that, to that degree, that he would come as one of us, making our weakness his own. That he comes to us humbly. He humbles himself, comes as a man, and we see his humility displayed in his birth. Jesus isn't born in some posh estate that smells of rich mahogany. He's He's born in a barn. Born in a barn that smells rich of manure, right? Cow poop. That's what's going on around Jesus. It's not pretty. It doesn't smell good. It's not a, a place that we want to spend the night in. He's laid in a manger, right? Mary and Joseph, they didn't bring a bassinet. They didn't have the pack and play. So they lay him in a feeding trough in a barn. It's not glorious. It's humble. And he comes to us as a newborn baby. Right, the pinnacle, the pinnacle of, of human weakness and dependency. A newborn baby, God in the flesh. He comes to us humbly. The word became flesh. Jesus became fully human. Fully human. And this language of becoming is also really deep and rich with meaning. Right? Jesus doesn't like shape shift. Okay? Like, no offense to those of you who like the shack. But, like, that's a really bad book to build your doctrine of the Trinity on, okay? He doesn't, like, shapeshift into, like, now I'm the Son, and now I'm in the Spirit. Like, he's, he's eternally all three. He doesn't shapeshift and then shapeshift back at the ascension. He's eternally the Son of God. Eternally. And this tense of this verb here, of becoming flesh, it implies a definite and completed action. That there is no going back from the incarnation, right? The word becoming flesh, that's what incarnation means. There's no going back from that. He's eternally Emmanuel, eternally God with us. The birth of Jesus is the grand miracle because Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And that is a gift. That is a gift. That is a miracle. That's, that's the, the really big deal because, the truth, because of the truth about us. It's a really big deal because of who we are, what our state is, what our condition is. Right, going back to the very beginning again. God creates us. He invites us into relationship with him, to live in his kingdom, under his rule. But all of us, we all reject it. We all rebel against him. We choose to go our own way. We sin against God. We choose to be our own God, to do our own thing. We know better. We're doing this, right? And we sever our connection with God. We sever that relationship. We sentence ourselves to death. The situation everyone, it's a situation every one of us finds ourselves in. We're all born under the curse of sin, under the penalty of sin, in need of rescue. That's a reality. But even before God ever made us, he set in motion this grand miracle. He had this miracle in mind to rescue and to redeem us. That he would send his son, Jesus, the eternal word, the eternal son of God, to come as fully God, fully man, to live in our place. Jesus comes, he's born as this perfect little infant, humble and dependent upon its mother. And he's raised and he's grown as a man. He grows and he lives that perfect sinless life, completely obedient. In all the ways that we fail to obey, Jesus obeys. He fills the law, keeps the law, because he's God in the flesh. And then he goes to the cross, humbly, lays down his life, dies the death that we deserve in our place for our sins and rises again on the third day victorious over Satan, sin, and death that through faith in Jesus we might know redemption, we might know salvation, we might have life, we might have hope, we might know joy again. 
That's what Jesus does. It's, this is the importance of this miracle. The word becoming flesh makes all of this possible. There's no hope of rescue if the word does not become flesh. If Jesus doesn't come as fully God, fully man, we're lost. Without hope. No joy. Jesus doesn't come fully God, fully man. There's no hope for rescue. Jesus had to be fully God and fully man to live that perfectly obedient life. Right? There's no way that happens without that. Jesus had to be fully God and fully man to die the death that we deserve in our place for our sins. If Jesus isn't a man, his death is not as our substitute. It doesn't count. He has to be fully man to die in our place. Jesus had to be fully God and fully man to be that one mediator between God and man. Because we were all alienated from God. We had no connection. We couldn't dial him up on the phone. We couldn't, you know, patch things up on our own. Cut off, sentenced to death. Alienated. We needed that one mediator to come, to live the life we couldn't, to die the death that we deserve, to be the go-between, to make us one again with God. That's this miracle, this grand miracle The truth that the word became flesh is truly good news. That's what the gospel means. Good news. It's good news of great joy. Let's dig into some of the implications of this. Some of the implications that the word became flesh for us. What does it mean for you and me that this incarnation happened? We could list out an endless number of implications, right? The list goes on and on and on. I'm just going to give you three today. All right, I'm just going to give you three. We're going to get out of here, and you're going to be happy. Right? It means that Jesus understands. That's the first one. Jesus understands. He understands what you're going through. He understands what it is to be tempted. He understands what it is to suffer. He understands you. He steps into the mess of our world. He steps right into the thick of it. Right? Knee-deep in manure on the day of his birth. Right? He's right there in the thick of it with us. He steps into our suffering and he suffers for us. He takes the suffering we deserve, the ultimate suffering, the full cup of God's wrath in our place. He knows what it is to suffer. Because Jesus came as God in the flesh, he can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with us in our weakness. He can sympathize with us in all of our struggles, our temptation, and our suffering, our weakness. Hebrews 4.15 It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted. He didn't sin, but he was tempted. In every way that you're tempted, he was tempted. But he did not sin. He knows what it is to be tempted. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. We see him in the Gospels weeping over the death of a dearly loved friend. He knows what it is to lose loved ones. He knows what it is to suffer all the hardships that we go through. He's not some distant, far-off God who's cold to us, has no idea what we're going through. He's been here. He's right in the thick of it with us. He's God in the flesh, tempted in every way, suffered in every way. He's dealt with stress beyond the stress that we could possibly imagine. As he prays in the garden the night before he's going to go to the cross and die. He's dealt with it all. He understands. Secondly, Jesus gives you hope. He gives you hope. Jesus is the hope given at the fall. 
right? Adam and Eve fall victim. They, they give in to sin. They, not just victims, they do it themselves, right? The serpent tempts them. Eve sins. Adam sins. They all sin. God comes. He speaks to the serpent, to Adam, to Eve, and he gives hope. He gives hope. He promises the first preaching of the gospel right there in Genesis chapter 3 that through the woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Even in the midst of our fall and our sin against God, our rebellion against God, there's a glimmer of hope that one is coming to redeem, to rescue, to make things right. He gives us hope. Jesus is the blessing that's to come through the line of Abraham. As God calls Abraham to himself, says, I'm going to make you a blessing to be a blessing to all the nations. Jesus is that blessing to all the nations that comes through the line of Abraham. Jesus is the promise of all the prophets. And I'll point to him, that he would be born of a virgin, he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he would come to us the way that he comes. He's the promise. And Jesus comes as that hope promised and now fulfilled. Hope that sin and death are not the end. They're not the end for us, but there's hope of redemption, that we could be set free from sin. We could be made one with God again. Luke 2, the angel appears to the shepherds out in the field at the birth of Jesus, right? They're scared out of their mind. Right? The angel appears and like, oh crap, what happened? You know, like, what's going on here? We're busted. It's kind of like their idea. Like, shepherds, not notoriously like the most upright, upstanding people in history. There's some pretty sketchy characters. And so they're probably like, you know, an angel appears out of nowhere. We're busted. We're busted. God's going to get us. He's jumping out of the closet to get us right now. We're busted. That's what the reaction is. And so they're scared to death. But the angels appear. And they're like, fear not. Fear not. What do they say? Fear not, for behold, Luke chapter 2, 10 and 11. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel announces hope for these shepherds. They think they're busted. They think God's going to come drop the hammer. But he gives them grace. He gives them hope. He gives them a Savior. He announces hope has come. I'd hope that Jesus has come full of grace, full of grace. That's hope for us too, right? Some of us, our view of God is like he's waiting behind the closet door and he's just going to jump out. Gotcha, right? I caught you. I seen what you're doing and now I've got you and now I'm coming with the hammer. You better watch out. That's not God. That's not our God. He's a loving, gracious God who gives us hope in the person of Jesus. He gives us hope that we're not busted. We're not just busted, but that Jesus has come to set us free, to liberate the captives, to take our sin, to take our sin, to die as our sin, to give us grace and forgiveness, to give us his righteousness, to clothe us in it, to make us one with God. Jesus gives you hope that who you are right now doesn't have to be who you will be. What you're dealing with right now doesn't have to be what you're going to be. You're not your struggles. You're not your sin. You're the grace, you're the righteousness of God by his grace. Right? He gives you hope that you can be made new through him in faith. Brand new. That what's happened in the past is the past. Right? You can be redeemed. He gives you hope that you're not defined by your situation. Jesus gives hope 
Lastly, Jesus gives you great joy. It's good news of great joy. Great joy that Jesus comes to us as God in the flesh. Life with God is available to us again. That's, that's joyful. We don't have to be alienated and on our own in our sin all by ourselves, trying to fight it on our own, trying to restore relationships that we can't restore on our own. Jesus comes to us, and that's good news of great joy. He gives us a joy-filled life, the good life with him. God doesn't leave us alone, just damned and defeated. But he comes to us and offers us hope. And that's joyful. That's joyful. It's a joy to know Jesus. It's a joy to serve Jesus. It's a joy to worship Jesus. It's a joy to tell others about Jesus. It's a joy. It's not a chore. It's not a burden. It's a joy. Think of what he's done for you. To rescue, to redeem, to make you new. It's joyful. It's joyful. And all of this is because Jesus, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Right, we've been doing Advent readings in our home all through the last few weeks um, leading up to Christmas with the kids. And Crystal's been doing some. I've been doing some on her own too. And one of the things that stood out to me the most is actually one that Crystal was reading. So she'd have to tell you which one it was specifically. But in one of the, the, the readings, it just talked about in the Gospel of Matthew. Right? The Gospel of Matthew opens up. We see the wise men coming to Jesus. It's come and see. It opens up, come and see. And then how does the book of Matthew end? The Gospel of Matthew. Jesus, giving us the great commission, go and tell. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So it begins, come and see. It ends, go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. And I think as we think on this grand miracle today, that we need to respond, and this is how we respond. Right? We respond with come and see. As some of you, you don't know Jesus. You haven't ever put your trust and faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You need to come and see. You need to come and see this Jesus, this God made man who lived the life you never could, who died the death you deserve to rescue you, to make you one with God again. You need to come and see him and you need to respond with worship, with repentance and faith. You need to respond that way. Others of us, right, we're Christians. We still come and see, right? That's still a regular rhythm We still come back to God's word. We come back to the gospel again and again every day to come and see and respond with worship, to respond again and again and again with repentance and faith. That's still a regular rhythm. But we also respond with go and tell. Right? We know the hope that we have in Christ. We've seen the great joy that comes from this good news. We need to share it. We need to go and tell. Right? Come and see. Go and tell. We need to respond. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your son, the word made flesh. May we respond today in the appropriate ways we need to, that we would come and see and worship, that we respond in faith, in repentance and faith, turning from our sin and turning to Christ in faith. May we also respond by going and telling, by sharing the good news of great joy. That it wouldn't just be for us, but it would be for all the people, right? Everyone that we work with, that we live around, that yeah, we would share it joyfully. God, may you use us this Christmas to be light in this world, to be hope, to be people who are ambassadors of your grace, of your peace, of your love, of your mercy. 
May people see you in the way we talk, in the words we use, the way actions, the way we love, the way we serve. And may you be glorified. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.